You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcast, Episode 8, Gabrielle Shiner-Hill, The Future of Fashion is Transparent. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcasts. I'm your host, Jodie Mutter-Hamilton, and I'll be talking to the people behind businesses and brands that make a difference. Each story is unique, but with a common thread of positive change, working towards a sustainable fashion industry, one that values innovation and craftsmanship, where style and ethics go hand in hand. All links and info will be in the show notes and online at blackneondigital.com. And be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at blackneondigital, Twitter at digitalneon, and subscribe to our podcast feed where you'll be notified of new episodes. In this podcast, we talk to Gabrielle Shiner-Hill, a trained weaver with over 20 years experience in fashion sourcing and production, who works with brands to turn their vision into a reality. Working on exciting projects such as Ender Sportswear, the first ever running shoe to be made in Kenya. Gabby is also the UK's sole authorised trainer for Point Carré, a textile software programme for printing, knitting and weaving. As a senior lecturer at Ravensbourne University, Gabby is equipping the future generation of fashion industry buyers with the kind of knowledge it has taken her over 20 years to uncover and understand. Gabby believes it's essential to work in a transparent, sustainable way that supports craftsmanship. By highlighting the importance of each individual element and person within a supply chain, she aims to make students aware of how their choices can make a significant impact. Hi, Gabby. Thanks for coming and joining us today. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. That's all right. We are going to get into the nitty gritties of sourcing and production. Um, and specifically today, we're going to look at transparent or ethical sourcing, which you've kind of got more into, I guess, of late. Yes, definitely. Um, but can we just begin a little bit with your background, your kind of like upbringing and family and kind of how you've got to where you are now, I guess, essentially? Um, well, upbringing wise, um, I grew up in the south coast, moved around quite a lot, uh, lived in 11 different houses before I was 18. So that definitely gave me um, a love of traveling and visiting people and seeing new places um were they all in the uk then i lived in greece for a year uh we were in south africa when i was really young but i don't really remember that but perhaps that did in you know bring something towards it but um my mum uh and dad moved around a lot when i was 18 i decided i was going to move to london i took a textile degree at central st martin's and studied there for three years um and after that i moved to new york basically to work for a textile design software company for four years so i've moved around quite a lot what um, was the actual software company what? uh the software is called point Carré, and um it's a french company but its job in america was basically to um enable all of the design companies to make textiles quicker and more efficiently and you still use that today don't i've you? been using yeah. it for 20 years yeah okay. so um i actually train uh, other companies on it now in the uk but in America, it's quite fascinating because it's part of the garment industry. But then it's also part of the automotive industry, the home textile industry. Um, so it's got a actually a really wide range of use. Um, so that was in New York. Okay. And that's for that actual software. That's all um, for wovens, is it? Is that exactly? No, woven okay. knits and prints. It's all textiles, um, not embroideries, um, but all textile um, creations and applications. So my specialization is weave, but I also teach the knit side and the print side. So print screens, half tones, separating screens, repeats, colorways, all of that. 
Do you use that um, at Ravensbourne now? Because I know you're a lecturer um, um, there now. <laughs> actually, they have one of our competitors, Ned okay. Graphics, which is uh, completely fine. Um, I don't use it at Ravensbourne. Um, a lot of universities do have it, and I train those universities. Um, but at Ravensbourne, actually, I focus more on um, sourcing product development and actually the theory behind it. So I don't teach any CAD lectures there. I'm completely theory and content based. There's actually a CAD tutor who teaches all of the okay. other, other work there. Could you just tell us a bit more about being at Ravensbourne and your experience there and sort of what you do teach the students there? Well, it's, um, it's a very interesting university. So the course I teach on is fashion buying and brand management. And I'm a senior lecturer there. It's a new course, it's only two years old, and it's quite a dynamic course. So the concept behind the course is that the head of course believed that there was a gap in the market for concept to consumer. Literally, you have an idea and you need to get a garment into store. And how does that process work? What's the critical path? What's the sourcing? Where do you source? What's the manufacturing? Who do you speak to? How do you buy it? So is it more uh, for a buying kind of role? It's for fashion buying, merchandising, um, product development. And then there's a brand management side, which is um, visual merchandising, luxury branding um, and marketing. I don't actually teach on that side. I mean, I'm involved in it, but I don't teach in that part. I'm purely on the product development, buying and merchandising side. Um, And the course, it's young, so it's dynamic. So I've written a lot of the content. We've just been accredited by the Textile Institute, which is great news. And what, what does that actually mean for the course? That and means, how, how do you do how did you get that accreditation? Well, it makes the course more desirable because the students can actually leave with letters after their name, okay. um, which is quite, quite a big thing, obviously, in this day and age, because there's a lot of competition within universities. Um, but actually, it's we're trying to embed textile knowledge into the buyers of tomorrow because that's where people have found it lacking. When you talk to the industry, you talk to the buyers, they all admit they walked into the industry and couldn't tell you the difference between a woven and a knit fabric. But we're trying to actually arm them with that information before they go in so that if they're sat there and asked to go through a box of fabrics and split them between wovens and knits, they can do that without having to sort of then say, I don't know. And what also what that, how that impacts the actual production and so forth as well is important, isn't it? The, the entire point of it is that the students understand the product development cycle. So if they want a piece-dyed woven fabric and they decide to change the colour at the last minute, they need to understand that someone has to re-dye that fabric. It doesn't just change. That no one, You can't dye over the top of it. Someone has to get new fabric, greyish fabric, and dye it again. What does that mean? What does that, how does it affect your lead time? How does it affect the people in the factory? How does it affect the yarns you're buying? All of these things are impacted. And as a buyer, you need to understand that. If you've worked in the industry 20 years, you will. If you're only entering the industry, you won't. So mm-hmm. we're trying. So to you're that. almost giving them the experience before. We're trying before to your yeah. twenty years worth we're, of production we're, yeah, experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're trying to, and it's the course was written by a buyer, a head buyer of um, Topshop and Cos. So okay. she really understands what the students need to know for that area um, of like UK retail. Um, but also the students have to do a placement as well because at the end of the day, if you're not working in the industry while you're a student you are going to be behind when you enter the industry. Are they generally sort of high street brands like Topshop and Cos that they go to or very varied? It's or? very varied, actually. And they're in charge of their own placements. So we've had students at Alexander McQueen. We've had students at Kurt Geiger, John Lewis, New Look. Um, they're up there. They have to sometimes temper their expectations because a lot of them come in and want to work in the luxury sector which in no way we we say that is absolutely brilliant but you've got to understand what that comes with um but they can work all over to be honest so 
Could you um, just describe a little bit about the kind of difference between the expectations of working in the luxury, but also um, the sustainable side of fashion? Because it's coming more, you know, to the forefront at the moment and people are getting more interested in it. And I'm guessing, you know, the younger generation, yeah. i.e. the students are becoming more aware and want to work at places like Rivonver, who we've done a, a podcast with before. And, and exactly. And actually, one of my students is doing an internship there, which is absolutely brilliant at the moment. Um the 30 we try and weight the course about 30 percent for sustainable issues it's not that um that's pretty quite yeah. a, a decent figure though isn't it really but the whole point of it is, is it's not that we talk about sustainable it's your decisions have to be sustainable it's not like this is sustainable fashion and and textiles and that's not it's like this is the way you need to think in a sustainable environment because we cannot carry on in the future the way we've been going so if we can get those students walking into the industry with that mindset, they will question the decisions they're being asked yeah. to make, or they'll be questioning like why they're having to flip factories just for a five p um, margin uh, margin decrease. What's a margin increase even? Yeah. So they're basically the future. You're That's teaching our aim. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm hoping in ten years we will see the fruits of our labour. Yeah. We've got sixty students going out. Yeah. So. And in terms of, do you know um, kind of percentages of jobs that are available in the industry? So you've got 60 going out, but do you know how many roles there are for them to fill? I I mean, how competitive is it? It's very competitive yeah. and I don't have that visibility, especially because we've got our first cohort of third years going in now. On the back of the fact that we had 40 students um, in the who are in our second year now, they all got placements. I'm taking that as quite a positive yeah. note. Mm-hmm. Um my biggest thing for our students is if they can be armed with CAD knowledge, i.e. Photoshop, Illustrator and a textile design programme and the theory knowledge, they will be more desirable because a lot of buyers come out and they don't have that. Um, but yeah, I don't the have versatility. Like, but there's a lot, there seems to be a trend in the industry of going for designer buyers. So we had... Um, is that to cut costs or...? <laughs> it's actually not to cut costs. It's more um, to cut decision-making because basically if you've got a designer on one side and a buyer on the other and they both want different things, you're they're both feeding into the factory. The factory's getting confused information. That happens a lot. <laughs> I get the feedback from factories constantly. Yeah. The buyer said this, the designer said this, but the buyer has the final say. Yeah. There is no way around. There's no doubt about that. Unless mm. you're a high-end design house, the buyer has the final say. Yeah. So if the buyer has a design... Um, credibility and understanding like you've said of the fabric and, and yeah. why it doesn't fit in that way or whatever is the fabric fit for purpose can yeah. it do what it's supposed to actually do have you sourced it for the correct routing for the lead time for the price that you have to fit into and you can actually have a design eye which most buyers do but if you can then implicate that into illustrator send your cards go to the factory it would make you more desirable yeah. that's our aim and it's yeah. just stop the flow of information being confused Mm. that's a big problem yeah um could you just talk a little bit about the other projects that you work on because obviously you're at Ravensbourne is it three days a week and Um, then yeah yeah and your other days I know you're very busy as well (laughs) so the other three days of the week (laughs) i.e Monday Tuesday and Saturday (laughs) I um the university is actually very good at letting me um work I, I go to Bangladesh, I go to Paris during term times. I'm actually, they're, they're very good at, because I'm hired as an industry professional, so I have quite a lot of flexibility in that way. Um, but the other days of the week, I run the production side for three of my customers. So I source fabrics um, and I source manufacturing routes for three customers that I have. Um, one is a small independent boutique in East London called Lunar and Curious. 
Um, what kind of product do they do? That, so for them, I do women's wear. They actually sell um, kids' wear, women's wear, lots of home products and a lot of jewellery um, and a few like um, and cards and stationery. But they want to do their own product lines as well. So um, we've just had the first um, pieces go out and they've sold out. So that's great. So we're about to do the second and third. It's very Which are really nice shirt dresses, aren't they? Nice yeah. shirt dresses. <laughs> pattern cut in the UK. Um, manufactured in the UK, fabric actually bought through um, a stock provider, which is not unusual for small minimum order quantities. Um, but that's what you have to consider when you're sourcing. So we know we've got as we've used as much UK as we can. Yeah. Um, as I said, pattern cut manufactured here, um, labels made here, buttons bought here but not made here, care labels made here. So as much as label, we can. I previously when I did my sort of swimwear I always found labels really hard to source yes. because they're always really itchy yes um so yeah if you've nailed that <laughs> there's two label companies and one has a specialized like um sealing that they do okay. um which is really good so yeah I mean you've got to take the um you've got to take what you can when you're sourcing if you're sourcing on small quantities you have to make some compromises so mm-hmm. we couldn't actually buy that fabric in the UK but for our next contract, we're hoping to get the fabric from Spain. So a little bit closer to home. Talked a lot about actually on the podcast with um, uh, previous people. So Nika of Paradise Row, we're talking about working within constraints and boundaries and what you can produce in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, could you, so you obviously work abroad as well. So you've mentioned Bangladesh. Yeah. So what's kind of you know people think oh, I'm made in Bangladesh can you just explain why for you that isn't necessarily a bad thing it's that's a really interesting question because I work um I've traveled to Bangladesh with my job so I worked in manufacturing for 15 years supplying big high street retailers and Bangladesh was one of our um, sourcing routes for garment making and also a little bit for fabrics so they have I think it's 80% of their exports are textile and um, fashion related. So it's the entire bedrock of their, you know, of their um, uh, country's economy. Garment wise, it's more tricky. A garment factory in Bangladesh that I visited had 36,000 employees with a capacity of 1 million garments a month being exported. That was one garment factory. Okay, so that's insane. There's a fabric factory which supplies them with a capacity of 100,000 yards of fabric a month only employs 1,600 people. Mm. It's a lot easier to work with 1,600 people. Still an insane <laughs> number. It is an insane number, but if you're, sat, um, if you're sat in a factory and you're walking around and you're talking to people and you can see everyone working um, and it's men working there, it's women working there, um, and the factory is run by a family. They've been going for mm. 30 years. It's not like they started yesterday. Um, and this is the company I work with. They're called Hamid. They make um, piece dye and yarn dye fabrics. Um, they literally said to me, it's like, we want to improve the image of Bangladesh. Come and see us. I had been there eight years ago um, and it was amazing, but I've been there for two hours. So how can you judge anything on the basis of two hours? They invited me out for five days. They said, come and meet us. Come and meet our workers. Come and see what we do. Come and see the machinery we bought just come and be with us. I had literally had dinner with their family every evening, lunch with their workers every lunchtime. And that's, you can actually see what's happening mm. in the factory at that point. Um, yeah, sort of two hours isn't enough and, no. and getting a piece of paper with a check and a tick, we've done this, that exactly. and the other isn't. Yeah, it's um, not the same. You, we got taken through 
the waste the wastewater um the wastewater and the waste effluents um we looked at the electricity and the amount of electricity they use and how they're trying to be off grid and how they're bringing in solar power of course that makes sense in bangladesh in italy lots of companies have already started doing this um and have nova feeders in italy for example is like 75 percent solar powered i believe at the moment a big linen supplier um but they they said to me they're like please come and see what we do and see what you think and if you want to work with us, and basically I was helping design their yarn dye collection with one of my designers, um, Bob, and I was I was really impressed. So I will champion them, yeah, and I will go and see them. Um, they they work for big companies. They make big. Um, they do big orders. There's no doubt about it. They're beaten down on price by a lot of people, mm. and someone's got to give someone a break at some point. Otherwise, yeah. you can't write off a whole country because everyone's moved to Ethiopia, and like, oh, well, you just moved to Ethiopia and have the same problems. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit earlier about um, why that move to Ethiopia would happen and sort of saying that, you know, it needs to be government incentivised and so forth. So it's the duty benefits, which is why people, why companies are moving. So retailers and brands look at the duty benefits that are coming up, which are set by the governments that are set within these trade negotiations. Um, Bangladesh has benefited for a long time for the everything but arms agreement. Um, And Ethiopia, China moved into Ethiopia I'm not an expert on this side of it, but some people would say 15 years ago. And actually, you've got big Chinese fabric mills that have moved some of their production to China. So they are doing fabric production in China and garment production. Sorry, fabric production in Ethiopia Ethiopia, and garment production in Ethiopia. So the lead time is much shorter. Uh, The duty benefits are there. You're not having to bring fabric into the country. It's being made on site. So it's very, Which very in a way desirable. is actually good for carbon footprint and yes. stuff as well, isn't it? Yes, but, it is. Yeah. But you have to be, you have to make sure, and the retailers and the government have to make sure that the factories that they're working with are training their employees. They're not just training them to be seamstresses. They're training them to be for the soft skills. They're training the managers. They're mm. training the big bosses. Um, they're training the HR people because if the people aren't governing themselves and working in their own factories, you've just got a load of expats mm. working with a lot of mm. which isn't force. good for good for the future is it really? no so i mean and i'm not i'm interested to see i was with um i was with pvh a couple of weeks ago and they said they had their first production coming out of there um fabric made and garment made first shipments from ethiopia, from ethiopia. Yeah. so we will see and we'll see we'll see what happens yeah. i'm interested to know i'd like to visit well, you, you were telling me earlier on, actually, when we were talking off, off air, as you call it, um, about a shoe company that you've been working with. Um, so my job for them was actually working on the running garments, a very small piece of the puzzle for them, which was part of um, part of the promo and a few pieces they're going to be doing. So hopefully we're doing some more stuff in the future. Um, and yeah, the garments are in the colours of the Kenyan flag, as are the shoes they come in black red and green um and they're absolutely brilliant i'm looking forward to getting more feet and getting out running amazing yeah so. so what's um so you've said the the soles were made in china yeah. and why was that what's been the difficulties um the machinery and the expertise does mm-hmm. not exist in okay. kenya right now their aim is to buy that machinery and train people okay. yeah wow. and train people in in uh i believe in nairobi uh yeah. to to make the the soles and and the uppers but that was their original intention. But once they started talking to people and talking to people within the shoe industry, they said, You're, that's too much. Start with compiling the shoe. 
Um, and then once you've got the shoe and you're happy with the shoe and you, you're, you've got it in production, then you can start bringing in machinery for mm-hmm. making other pieces. Basically, you try and make some money first and then... Yeah, and yeah, get yeah. some investment, get some interest yeah. behind it. Um, and that's that's their plan. So I'm I can't wait to see what they're going to yeah. do in the future. That's really exciting. I can't wait to actually see the product as well. Yeah, they're, so they're called Ender Athletic, and okay. everyone should. I will look, look out for yeah. them. <laughs> you might see me um, running around Southeast London in them. Um, so we've talked a bit about the, the difficulties, but also what are the the positive sides of sourcing um, sustainably, transparently, um, and you know we've said longer term if they do make um in the same place as the producing and everything sourced then it cuts down on like transportation yes. and, and all that so there are benefits so could you just there, there describe are, that a little bit there are definite <laughs> benefits so um i specialize in transparent sourcing which i have quantified as when my customers come to me we source together they know every every um fabric supplier they know the yarn supplier if i have that information as well and they know the manufacturer they know where the buttons come from the thread comes from the labels come from that's my whole usp is that this should be open and if it's a good company we should be sourcing from them so sourcing transparently and ethically um the benefits well first off are the i mean the personal benefits of the people that you meet as a starting point, because if you talk to one person, they are very keen to tell you about another company that is doing something similar, as opposed to on down the traditional manufacturing routes, you'll get a lot of like, no, I'm the only person that makes cotton here. I was like, really in the whole of China, you're the only person that makes cotton shirting. Amazing. Um, So you actually get, it opens up the whole of that sourcing um, area because it's a lot smaller, smaller Mm -hmm. markets. The difficulties are obviously, finding the people in the first place but more and more people are interested so you can actually find fabrics you start those conversations and you ask the next person the next person the next person you can usually find what you're looking for um the drawbacks are um sometimes cost but that doesn't actually necessarily mean it's going to impact the products at the end of the day if you're making a garment in the uk you are not making a cheap garment Mm. so the difference between buying fabric for six euros to eight euros to 10 euros is kind of marginal if your cmt is 30 40 50 pounds for a cmt on a garment you will pay more for that fabric um could you just um explain for people who don't know what cmt is uh, yes uh, what cmt and also we've talked about freight on board and all the different sort of shipping things if you could just give a quick yes quick <laughs> yes a quick rundown <laughs> on inca terms for shipping yeah. well the first thing for cmt it means cut make and trim so if you go to a factory and they say they will give you a cmt price that means they will cut the fabric make the garment and attach the trims to it you have to supply everything to them you supply the fabric and the labels and the buttons they will probably source the thread for you. Um, but that's what CMT means. And that's the that's the lowest form that you could get price-wise. If they offer you fully factored, that means that they will source the fabric, source the labels and do that for you. But you're obviously... Will they show you the cost of all the fabrics and no. stuff? Okay. they will give so you a final So that could be garment. an area that they could bump up or whatever, or you'd never know. That could definitely be an area they would bump up. But in that respect... Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you know where your fabric has come from I would if a factory offered me fully factored and said I will source the fabric and I will tell you I'll give you the fabric supplier you can talk to the fabric supplier but they give me a final garment price I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset by that because they've done a huge amount of legwork used their contacts and they're providing you with a fabric from a fabric supplier that they trust because if they're a garment maker that's been going for 30 years they're not going to be using well 
they hopefully won't be using bad fabric suppliers. Yeah. It they'd depends be, what you're... They'd also be in a better position than you would be as a new person to negotiate terms, wouldn't they? To so, negotiate terms, minimum yeah. order quantities, they could be they could possibly be buying more fabric and using it on a separate contract. But these are the risks that you're taking on fully factored. I generally work on CMT because I source those fabrics. Um, for the Inca terms, which is things like CIF, FOB, which means freight on board, carriage insurance freight for CIF, there's quite a few of them. I only use two of them. Um, FOB basically means that your garments have been delivered to a, the factory door, literally the warehouse door. They're sat in a box You're, and you own them from that point. So if there was, um, you know, a huge rainstorm and your garments got um, destroyed outside of the factory, that's your problem, not the factories. You own them. You have to then pay for the carriage insurance and freight to get them to your shop, your warehouse, wherever it's going. Carriage insurance freight mean that they'll probably deliver it to a port for you of your choice in your country of origin where you're... And you've got to get them out of that port. (laughs) Then you have to get them out of the port, exactly. That's where things like um, you have to deal with port authorities. You just basically have to make sure you've got um, the money ready and you've got the right um, E-N-O-R-I number. Yeah, Yeah. and the money. (laughs) Yeah. There is... The most expensive is if it's delivered direct to your door um, and not so many people do that just because of the price, but I forget the name right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sorry, could you just tell us, actually, we were talking about technology and your point carré and and all that kind of thing. But earlier on, we were, when we were having a little pre-chat, talking about a factory that you've recently been working with, um, where technology has kind of brought the whole factory back to life, actually. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, it's actually an amazing story. It's a weaving mill up in Scotland called Nokando, um, which is sort of an hour right of Inverness, just north of Cairngorm. I mean, it's at, I've just been up there um, this week and it's beautiful. So um, it was an old weaving mill which had fallen into disrepair. The looms had physically been taken apart. They were in pieces. Um, and someone bought the, um, lit, bought the mill and wanted to um, revive it. So they hired an old production manager who had been at Moon's and then Johnson's of Elgin's, this amazing guy, Brian, who I've been working with all week, all week old school proper old school guy he's literally just there with his like spanner whilst fixing looms um and what they did is they've actually it's a dawn an old dornier loom which has a controller and that controller has run through a very old pc and what they've been doing is they've been plotting their weaves on a piece of paper plotting their peg plans on a piece of paper and then entering that information into a very old computer which then runs the looms um an American IT guy came in and said, I think there might be a better way. We can be a little bit more efficient than this. So he actually found us, Point Carré, um, and said, right, how can you drag us into the 21st century? But we still want to be using our looms. So we've got Point Carré actually communicating with 40-year-old looms. Um, so they can design um, their fabrics on the computer. They can simulate their fabrics, but they can also then create the file, which is sent to the loom to run the loom, which just it makes it so efficient. It cuts out weeks weeks of working out threading plans colorways all of these things um and i've got brian working on it so brian who's been in the industry for i think he said 42 years yeah. is working on a mac working on point correct it's absolutely brilliant and so. still obviously using all the traditional using looms, all so the it's, looms. it's kind of a really good synergy of both worlds coming together they've got a dob cross loom which is completely hand powered which is run um run by um uh, Samantha down there or up there even um, but these they have two looms which they are powering by the computers as well yeah it's all still 
um, yeah, basically by hand. And do they, um, who do they make for companies that we'd have heard of? Or They supply um, a lot of bespoke, because they make a lot of tweeds, um, specious hounds too. So they make like a lot of stuff in Scotland, obviously. So they make the traditional tartans. Okay. They make a lot of the family tartans, personal tartans, um, Edinburgh Castle's actual tartan. Um, and then they also supply, you know, UK and mm-hmm. London-based mm-hmm. companies, some of which okay. they keep a little bit under wraps. Yeah. And they have their own, they supply their own uh, fabric as well, which you can okay. buy from them. Amazing. Um, just wondering if there is anything particularly you want to shine a light on, because I, I know you uh, well, I think, <laughs> You often. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the biggest area for me, and which is where I'm trying to grow and expand and talk to people about is is circular manufacturing and I, it's a bit of a buzz term I do understand yeah. that and I've used it quite a lot with the students as well they're probably a bit like yeah 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 we get it um but I truly think that if you're if you are not putting another process into the chain you're doing something right so if for example we, you actually asked me a question about tensile which I'm not a textile technologist but for example lensing and tensile have made um, a new fiber which is an eco tensile which is part tensile and part post consumer um, recycled cotton that's how, that to me is perfect they have not had to create something to make something new we're actually which using... could be another problem yes <laughs> yeah exactly and obviously these things have to be um the the cottons have to be you know shredded and reprocessed i do understand there is still a process within that but the fact is they exist you are not having to grow anything you are not having to engineer anything you're actually just making something from something that already exists and to me that is where i want to head um there's people in the industry who are very um who are very dedicated to this area and they have way more knowledge and experience than me i'm gonna go and find and talk to them um so my, my my job at pv is basically to talk to every supplier i work with and say what are you doing about this are you doing anything um how are you working how is it recycling are you adding doing so it's not adding something new to the supply chain that's where my passion is at the moment and that's where i want to head and you just mentioned pv so that's obviously a sourcing fair that you premier vision yeah, is the yeah. um, biggest sourcing fair so it's run twice a year um in september and then in february uh, there's also the Shanghai Fair, which is sort of its Asian uh, counterpart, shall we say. Um, but PV is basically, I mean, I went there when I hadn't even started my company. I was on maternity leave yeah. and I turned up for three days and everyone's like, oh, Gabby, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm just having some coffees, chatting to some fabric suppliers. I just walked around and talked to people. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a trade show. Yeah. Everyone's sat having a coffee, yeah. chatting about stuff. <laughs> Just thinking, I'm thinking about that show, and I'm also thinking about. Um, we talked earlier again off air about the you're taking a lot of students to visit a yes. denim factory. Well, <laughs> it's actually um, it's the London Cloth Company. Okay, so it's run by a guy called Daniel, who is um, I would describe him as an engineer. I don't know if he described himself that as that. He's quite fascinating. He basically became obsessed with old looms. Uh, and he found all of these old looms that didn't work. There's a bit of a theme within weaving. There's a lot of old looms around, basically. <laughs> what happened is, What do you do with them? Well, basically yeah. what happened in the mid-90s when the manufacturing all went off a cliff because it moved overseas to China. I think everyone does know that story. All of our looms were sold off. They were bought by India and China. They didn't have any looms, right? So all that was left here was old looms, mm. really, really old, like proper industrial looms. Um, uh, this guy, Daniel became obsessed with them he started buying them I, I don't i think he started picking them up from places for scrap to be honest and he started rebuilding them and remaking them and he got them working 
So he was weaving up in Hackney for a good number of years. He's since moved out to Epping. And he's got customers. I mean, Ralph Lauren comes over to buy fabric from him. He's, you know, he's doing well in that sense. But he's gone down part of an indigo route. Um, and we have a big project coming up called Creative Collaboration, which is about um, our students working with denim, working with indigo. Um, it's too big a project to go into now. But I want to get those buyers looking at a loom weaving indigo, basically. Uh, and the closest place to do that is Epping Forest. Um, and I think actually most of the other lecturers were quite surprised that I had someone to take 100 students to that was yeah. so close to Greenwich where we are. So I'm really excited about getting them down there. Um, and I'm excited that so they can see the process of how you make fabric. And this isn't even like, it's not just spinning yarns or growing the cotton. This is just weaving the fabric. Mm. So they will see that one process and they will yeah. see how labour intensive it is and time intensive. Amazing. <laughs> um, could you tell us a bit about how you juggle your life? And because you're massively busy. I know you were on a plane last night. I know that, you know, you've cycled here after dropping one of your kids off. Could you just go into that mm-hmm. and how on earth you manage it? Well, um, I think considering we're sat here with your six week old, uh, seven week old son, gorgeous son um nearby not right beside us um I think you probably understand the juggling process it's it is ridiculous don't get me wrong um ask a busy person to do something and they do something Mm. for you is one of the mantras I would say um really though what I actually have is I have a massive support network so my husband first of all uh, a lot of his work happens to be um, on American time zones. So actually, his, he is not on a nine to five. That makes a massive difference. Um, my mother and my mother-in-law both live in London, which is very unusual. Yeah. Um, so I cannot obviously express how much help they give me. Um, and a friendship group. Kaz's best friend picks up Penelope from school. Yeah. Um, so within all of that, and also working at university, having some flexibility there, owning my own company. So I am able to stop at three and start again at eight and working six days a week. That's really how it's... Yeah. it's so the, the flexibility as well, you said, I remember you saying to me that you'd never planned to own your own company, but no. it's just kind of happened like that. And is that because it's a combo of the flexibility and, you know, what you want to do? And, and... I think there's two things. The main thing... People say to me, oh, you started your own company. It must be great because you can just like look after your kids all day. And I'm like, who, what, what? No, this is ridiculous. I'm busier than I was when I was working on the nine to five. No doubt about it. But if there is, okay, if there's a school play, if my daughter needs picked up, I can, in, I can drop everything and do that. Um, so that flexibility is amazing. But that's not why I started yeah. the company. I started the company because I've been in the manufacturing industry for 15 years. I've been working on the supply side supplying big UK uh, retailers and I really don't believe that that supply side is going to carry on much longer those UK retailers are going um, straight to the factories they don't need the middlemen as they did before they might need them in a different guise but they don't need them as we were doing it and I thought to myself there are going to be small companies who would like help sourcing there are going to be independent retailers who haven't got a clue where to look for good stock fabric Um, And so that's what I thought about. And that's how I sort of based the company around it. I don't want to just become a supplier. That's not my aim. My aim is to try and open up those independent retailers to the fabric suppliers, to the manufacturers. In theory, yes, doing myself out of a job, because if you're opening it up, you're giving them the contacts. But also I'm a single person, so I'm not going to be running 10 independent companies, product developments. That's not going to work for me. So um yeah flexibility wise yeah amazing um 
well, I know you've got your tax return to do after this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that this yeah, afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gabby, for coming. And I look forward to catching up next time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Right, thanks. The way in which Gabby approaches her business and juggles motherhood is outstanding. As she said, she has a great support network around her, which makes all the difference. This enables her to have a huge impact on the future generation of the fashion industry and also steer the brand she works with in the right direction. Open to opportunities and trusting her own judgment, she champions both British and overseas factories, such as the one in Bangladesh we talked about. After all, if we turn our backs on a whole country for fashion production because we see poor working conditions, a situation which arguably we caused in the first place, how can we expect to see standards raise? Working together in an honest, transparent way is the only way forward. I hope you're inspired by our latest podcast episode. All links and info will be in the show notes and online at blackneondigital.com. Till our next episode, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon, and subscribe to our podcast feed where you'll be notified of new episodes.